Good morning, everybody. How are you? I'm Todd. Hi, Todd. <laughs> what am I going to do with him? And uh, I'm the lead pastor here, but you'd never know. Uh, <laughs> but um, we are glad that you are here. And by the way, I will bring my Christmas baking. I'm on it. I'm on it. Got it. Let's, um, so anyway, um, we're going to read together in just a moment, and if you are wondering what text we're going to read this morning, I have no idea. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55 is our text this morning. Mary's song, we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, over the last weeks, I don't even know where this came from. Over the last weeks, we have been doing uh, morning groaners. And... Um, I mean, people have been sending them to me, which I really appreciate. So somebody sent me this one, Buford, which I love the name. Um, Buford had a uh, pet, um, I got to look it up here, a pet buzzard, a pet buzzard that he wanted to bring on vacation. He was going to Hawaii on vacation, and so... um, he, he realized that with such a long flight that he couldn't afford the extra baggage to carry this buzzard pet with him. So what he decided to do was he would bring it in the um, cabin with him, you know, as carry-on luggage. But it turns out that Buford had too much carry-on baggage. Okay, this is good. This is what we're looking for. Now, somebody else sent me this one. So what do you call two guys sitting on a windowsill? Two guys sitting on a windowsill. Kurt and Rod. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking. Pastor Todd, don't read any more that people send you. Yours are much funnier. (laughs) Thank you. I know that's, I, I appreciate the support. But at any rate, let's stand together and uh, let's read this text. I'm reading the red, and you're reading the black, and uh, this is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold... From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Well done. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And more importantly, we know that you love us, and you demonstrated that so vividly, so extravagantly, so generously in, through, and as Jesus Christ. And so we pray today and thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, who is the Spirit of God. And we know that everything that you have accomplished and afforded in Jesus is available to us through the work, the ministry, 
in the agency of the Spirit. And so we ask today that as we look at your word and as we reflect around Christmas and around the songs of Christmas, that you would give us a voice to speak with clarity, that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to comprehend. And when we leave this place today, And throughout this week, that we would be your disciples, that we would be your followers who will be the hands and be the voice and be the feet of Jesus in meaningful, physical, tangible ways. That we may bless this city, our neighbors, our families, our marriages, our homes, and that you may be pleased and praised in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't you be seated? So, for those of you that are uh, new, or for those of you that are watching online, uh, we are in a series called The Songs of Christmas, and last week we did an introduction, or I did an introduction, and this morning we are talking about Mary's song. So there are four songs of Christmas, Mary's song, which we're going to look at today and next week, and I'll explain why in a moment, and then there's Zechariah's song. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. And then there is the angel's uh, song, which we're actually going to look at, at uh, on Christmas Sunday morning. And, um, and then there is the song of Simeon, which we're going to look at on the eve of the new year. And uh, so this morning our text is uh, first, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. But what I didn't know before that I learned um, as I've been looking and preparing for these messages is that Mary's song actually is in two parts. And verses uh, 46 to 50 actually is the first part. And that's what God does. It's sort of the theme is what God does for Mary and focuses on Mary. And then the second part, which we'll look at next week, which is 51 to 55, talks about those same principles, but that they're applied to other people other than Mary. And so we'll get to that next week. And so today our focus is Mary's song part one. And Mary's song is really Mary's response. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I, I like weird things. And one of the things that I really like doing is listening to people um, and hearing what they say when they learn that they have won a contest or they've won the lottery. Now, I'm not endorsing that, but at any rate, there's some of the things that I've heard people say. I have never won anything in my life. It can't be true. This can't be happening to me. This is a dream. This is surreal. I can't believe this. I also like reading the Bible and noticing that every time people in the Bible get news, they also, it it sort of comes to them unexpectedly and they're, they're surprised by it. And to say the least... Mary is caught by surprise when Gabriel appears to her. Now, who wouldn't, right? Now, I don't know about you, but honestly, if an angel were to appear to me, which as never, I think it would be a wet-your-pants type moment for me. But that's just me. Now, Mary is caught by surprise, and this is what she says, but what Luke says about her in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse um, 29. But she was greatly troubled, no kidding, at the saying. And tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And so this is Mary's response now to the greeting. And to say that Mary is a little surprised, it's a bit of an understatement, I think. But it's about to get better or worse. 
depending on our view. Mary, if you are surprised and troubled by the fact that an angel appeared to you, just hear and listen to what you're about to hear. And, Luke says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And I think this is what they call mic drop. And Mary asks a very good question. In verse 34, um, Gabriel, how is this supposed to happen? Because I'm a virgin. Now, before we rush into Mary's song, we should stop and think about the angst that Mary must have felt. Now, just think about it, okay? For, first of all, she's pregnant. And she is not married, and in her culture, that is highly problematic. Second, she's got to deliver the news to Joseph, her fiancé. So just imagine she goes to Joseph and says, Joseph, um, I got something to tell you. I'm pregnant, and it's God. Now, folks, that's a hard sell. Now, no one, I suspect, is more surprised than Mary that she's actually the one. That she's actually the one that is chosen to be the mother of Jesus. And it must have seemed somewhat bittersweet. So, here's my question. How would we have responded? Now, Mary's response is what I like to call reluctant joy. Now, we see the same thing with Moses. When God appears to him in the burning bush and God calls him, and Moses, uh, Moses does not rejoice. Surprised, yes. Honored, yes. Excited, yes. But joy, mm, not yet. Moses, too, asks questions. How is this going to happen? And Moses doubts God's choice and God's wisdom of even choosing him. And Moses also doubts the fact that, are the people of Israel really going to listen to me anyway? And then we come to Jeremiah. And the same thing with Moses and Mary is the same thing with Jeremiah. The call of God surprises him. And Jeremiah did not receive it with joy either. There is reluctance. So my question to you and me this morning to us is, how would we have responded? But God is no pushover. God knows how to push them and us toward joy albeit reluctant joy. Somebody said that joy is fulfilling what God has planned for us. That joy is fulfilling what God has planned for us. Now here's the thing. 
What God has planned for us, that journey will be a combination of both good and bad, of joy and sorrow, of good times and difficult times, but we will never ever be fully happy until we go in the direction that God has planned for us. And if we do not go in the direction that God has planned for us, I suspect that we're probably going to have some regrets. Now, you don't know my background very well, but my mom once told me that my dad uh, once had the call or felt the call to pastoral ministry. And for whatever reason, I never ever talked to him about it, but for whatever reason, he would not, and he could not do it. Now, I don't know if this is the reason... But my dad in his later years was what I would refer to as never quite happy. There was always a low-grade sadness about him. But here's our question. How would we have responded? Now, eventually, like Jeremiah and Moses, Mary gets there. And it's seen in our text, which is Mary's song. And Mary's response is, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, in context of the Scriptures, is this how we would have responded to an unplanned teenage pregnancy? Imagine that our teenage daughter comes home and says, Hey, Mom and Dad, I got some news. I'm pregnant, and it's God. Or our teenage son comes home and says, Hey, Mom and Dad, I got some news. Um, My girlfriend is pregnant, and I'm not the dad. It's God. Well, I suppose after we got up off the floor, we would have to figure out how we are going to respond. Now, cuteness aside, it doesn't have to be that. But for all of us in this room and all of us watching online, there are other kinds of unplanned news. Other kinds. This is what Eugene Peterson said. He said, the person, task, the threat, the frustration, the institution, the circumstances, that our first impulse is to curse, becomes the occasion for going beyond our strength or understanding or inclination to search out the purposes of God, where God is working them out. So again, how would we have responded? And how have we responded to unplanned news? Now, a couple of things as we start into Mary's song. First thing that you need to know that it's called the Magnificat. Magnificat. And 
It's really the Latin word or verb for the word magnify or magnifies in the very first line. My soul magnifies the Lord. That's where we get it. The second thing we know about or we need to know about uh, the songs of Christmas, particularly this song, is that like us, songs were very important to the first Christians. Now, for different reasons than for us, and here they are is that the first Christians did not have the Scriptures. And even if they did have the Scriptures in front of them like we do, they were mostly illiterate. So what they would do is they would take Scripture and doctrine and they would put it into song. Some, like when we learn our ABCs, we put it to a jingle. So we sort of remember it. Songs help us to remember stuff. And that's where the creeds come from. It's a way to memorize the scriptures and doctrine. And that's why they did that. The other thing that we notice about Mary's song is Mary's familiarity with the, with the Old Testament. And what you probably don't notice right away, but if you take time next week or whatever to do some comparison, that, the, that there is a very strong parallel between Mary's song and the song of Hannah, who is the mother of Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Matter of fact, in Mary's song that we just read, there are 20 illustrations or allusions to, New, to the Old Testament. Now, the third thing, and probably the most important thing to us, is that Mary's song tells us that there is a pattern to the people that God chooses and he uses. There's a pattern. Now, most of the characters in the Christmas story inspire us with their faith. For example, the shepherds come quickly and they worship willfully. The wise men travel far and are extremely generous. Joseph is open and flexible and he is obedient. And Mary had obedient, Mary had courage and humility. Now, I don't know if you've noticed in the news, there's something very unique happening across the pond in Great Britain, in the UK. You probably noticed that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have gotten engaged. And they're getting married in May at the chapel in Windsor Castle. Did you know all that? How many of you saw that? Read that? See, I knew. Pastor Kevin did. Pastor Kevin is a serious royal watcher. Just a little tidbit as we go along. And now we're even. Now... But remember, but remember when Prince William was, it was announced that he was engaged to Kate Middleton. And all the fuss, all the concern was this. Kate was just a commoner. Exactly. Isn't it a wonderful thing that God views, chooses, and uses people differently? And this is what I refer to as the relationship between the holy and the lowly. And this is Mary, a commoner. You know, the one of the things I love about Mary is that Mary knows who she is, but she also knows who she is not. Now, we know, of course, that Christmas and gift-giving, they go together. 
And they, they have always been associated with each other from the very beginning and for good reason. Because we know that the Magi brought the three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and the shepherds gave Jesus their gift of time and belief. But Mary gave Jesus the gift of her womb. So my question, again, is what would our response have been? Matter of fact, we just lit the Advent uh, candle, and Advent is to remind us of the gift that we celebrate, the coming of the gift of Jesus, the most extravagant, generous, gracious gift that's ever been given. But how would we respond to that gift? How would we respond to something like Mary, something like Moses, something like Jeremiah? How would we have responded? Now, I can already hear a couple of responses. Some of you are probably going to say, well, it's, it's too late. Well, I'm here to tell you that no, it isn't. It's never too late with God. You and I are never too old, we're never too messed up, and we're never too worn out. And I got some proof. Elijah was depressed, and God still used him. Abraham was old, and God led him. Moses was long retired, and God still called him. Jonah was on the run, and God still used him. And Jacob cheated his family, and God still had a place for him. And Peter betrayed Jesus, but God still had a plan for him. And Saul persecuted Christ, and God's grace still reached him. And Thomas had serious doubts, and God still had his hand on him. But each learned, each one of them learned, that it's not too late. Now, I can hear others of you say this, you know, yeah, but I've been too bad. What I've done disqualifies me, but if that's the case, then consider this. Tamar was abandoned. Ruth was an immigrant. Rahab was a prostitute. David was an adulterer. And Solomon, a philanderer. And here's another thing. We imagine that if God was going to visit us, if God was going to talk to you, to me, to us, if God was going to engage us, then one of the things I think that we would want to say or respond with is, I need some time to prepare. I need some time to get ready. So if that's the case, then physically, what would you do? Or relationally, what would you change? Or emotionally, what would you do? Or spiritually, what would you fix? And here's the bottom line. We don't get that. That's not how it works. God comes to us the way we are now. 
There's no time to prepare or get ready. God comes to me the way I am now. It comes to you the way you are now. And when he came to us first, for those of us who are Christians, he came to us the way we were, not the way we'd hoped we were. This brings us then to the second stanza of Mary's song, which is God's character. Now, Mary praises three attributes, three characteristics, three features, three qualities of God's person and his nature. The first one is God's mighty power. And she says this, for he who is mighty has done great things. Now, illustration of the mighty acts of God are limitless. But the one mighty act of God that pertains to what we're talking about and pertains to this season comes from Luke chapter 1, 35 to 37. And we all know it, or most of us know it. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold... Your relative Elizabeth in her old age also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. But nothing, the angel concludes, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now I want you to think about the power, the might of God for a moment. Can you imagine a person who has raw power. Can you imagine some egotistical crazed despot or some power-hungry dictator? But God's might and God's power is tempered by his holiness and by his love. Max Licato says, He entered the world not to demand our allegiance, but to display his affection. So I want you to notice two small but very significant qualifications. I didn't read the whole line of the statement. Mary says, For he who is mighty has done great things, and here it is, for me. Those are the two words. Two small but very significant words. The first word for is this. We must always remember that what God does and allows in your life and in my life, in our lives, is something that he does for us, not to us. Now let me explain To do something to someone is to run over them, is to force something on them or to ignore their freedom to choose, their free will, their freedom. To do something for someone is to consider their needs, to honor their person, to do something that will benefit them, that will be for their good. And Mary says that the Almighty, or rather that he who is mighty has done great things for me. 
And the second word is me. Me. I want you to say the word out loud. That's not loud enough. Say it again. Just remember this. That our God is a personal God. And He knows. And He knows. And He knows what I'm going through. And He knows my problems. And He knows my person. And He knows what I can and cannot bear up under. And I don't know about you, but I am moved with the words of Max Licato when he writes this. Jesus comes not with a list of things for you to do, but with a list of things that he has already done and will do. Jesus lifts burdens. He doesn't add to them. Jesus lifts burdens. He doesn't add to them. And that brings us then to the second characteristic that Mary praises of God's nature and person, and that is God's holiness. God's holiness is in perfect harmony with his love and his power. God's power never violates or abuses his holiness. So now here's my second question for us this morning. What makes us feel alive? What makes you feel alive? What makes me feel alive? Now, most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with the famous quote by Henry David Thoreau where he says, the mass of men... And sorry, ladies, but he's writing in a time where it was very male-dominant. The mass of men, slash women, lead lives of quiet desperation. And then somebody else expanded on it, and they said this. Most men, slash women, lead lives of quiet desperation and die with their, while their song, or with their song, still inside of them. Mary wasn't one of those. But I think that expansion sort of has, is more fitting for us. Now, I'm not smart enough to know if what Thoreau said was true, that most men slash women live lives of quiet desperation. I don't know if that's true. But Joseph Campbell said something that resonates with me so much so that I have written it in my journal, and when my computer goes on, uh, power save, what's a screensaver mode, this quote is right there because it's so powerful and it's so meaningful to me. And this is, what, this is what Campbell says. He says this, people say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think that what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so that our life experience on the purely physical plane will have resonance within our own inmost being of, rea- of reality so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. So I ask us again this morning, 
What makes us feel alive? What gives us life? Now, I'm going to go down a bit of a rabbit trail here. So I want you to just follow me, and I'll get us out of the rabbit trail in about three minutes. All right? Maybe two. I'm reading this book by Marian, uh, Miriam Greenspan. And uh, Marian Greenspan was born in a uh, refugee camp in southern Germany. Her mom and dad um, were Holocaust survivors. And she wrote a book called... Um, Healing Through the Dark Emotions, and Ruth and I have been reading together, and this is what Greenspan says. She says that our culture, society, is, is emotion-phobic. We fear our emotions, and because of that, we devalue them. Emotion-phobic. We fear our emotions, and because of that, we devalue them. And then she went on to write this. And it's in your notes. When we suppress or diminish our emotions, we feel deprived. Now, this has been written in the early um, 2004. She says, so we watch horror movies or so-called reality shows like Fear Factor or Survivor. We seek out emotional intensity vicariously. because Because when we are emotionally numb... We need a great deal of stimulation to feel something, anything. So emotional pornography, she calls it, provides the stimulation. But it's only irtsat or substitute emotion. It doesn't teach us anything about ourselves or the world. Now let me explain what she's saying here. It's the same reason why we ride roller coasters watch horror movies, or even watch sports, something like football. So for the three hours that we're watching the football game, we feel this sense of false transcendence. We feel for three hours that we're alive, that we're a a part of something that's bigger than we are and beyond us. For the minute and a half that we're on the roller coaster, an hour and a half that we're watching the horror flick, we are sort of entering into, and briefly, briefly, we feel alive. We feel the rush of the emotion. We feel the fear. We feel the excitement. And we become alive for just that three hours or that hour and a half or that one and a half minutes. Frederick Buechner said it's like, If we are not alive, it's like living our lives on autopilot. Not really being alive, just playing it safe with our lives, just going through the emotions. Now let me make the connection. I don't know if Mary lived a life of quiet desperation. Probably not, because she wouldn't have even known anything about that. She was probably in her time, spending most of her time just trying to eke out an existence. But what I love about Mary and Mary's song is something that we see also in other stories. For example, Moses at the burning bush. Or Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where he's in the temple and it's filled with smoke and the angel of the Lord. And like Moses at the burning bush in Midian and Isaiah in the temple, Mary found herself alive with the presence of God and in the presence of God. 
In fact, she was alive with a life far in excess of anything she or we could have imagined. And here's the connection. Mary, Moses, Isaiah, etc., 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 walked out of their stories on fire themselves, energized for lifelong, life-giving vocations. And then in the words of Eugene Peterson, as Kingfisher's Catch Fire, his new book, he writes, Holiness did not make God smaller. It made men and women larger. So God could give out life through them extravagantly and spontaneously. And this is what many of those people who are people of no faith don't get, don't understand about Christianity is that it makes us alive, or it's supposed to make us alive. And then very quickly, the last thing that Mary talks about of God's nature is God's mercy. And she tells us, first of all, that mercy is unmerited. If, it was, if mercy was something we could earn, it wouldn't be mercy, it would be something else, but it wouldn't be mercy. And she also says that it's selective for those who fear him. And then finally she says, it's unending from generation to generation. And Mary, when she talks about God's holiness, or God's power rather, and when she talks about God's holiness, and when she talks about God's mercy, to her she interprets it as being expressed in the generosity of God. I'm going to invite the musicians to come and the ushers to get ready for communion. And I want to end with this quote. Faith is the willingness to trust our lives and our future to God. Even when God does not appear to be as reliable as other more immediate supports. Did you hear that? Did you read that? Let me read it again. Faith is the willingness to trust our lives and our futures to God. Even when God does not appear to be as reliable as other more immediate supports. Father, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for your presence that we sense and we feel. And we pray that those that are watching online feel that same sense. But Lord, through Mary's song, through Mary's life, through Mary's example, you are calling us to respond, to trust our lives, our future, our children, our children's children, and everything that we are and have to you, even when you do not appear 
to be as supportive as other more immediate supports. As we come to your table today, fill us with the wonder, the hope, the prospect of being alive. Being alive with your presence and being alive in your presence. In Christ's name and for his name's sake.